Michael Rogers is a self-storage and industrial warehouse investor from Cleveland, Tennessee. After working for 15 years in the corporate accounting world, Michael transitioned to full-time real estate investing in 2017. When he was still working his full-time corporate job, he was also purchasing, remodeling, and managing rental properties as a side job. He currently self-manages a portfolio of 350 storage units, several residential rental properties, and is developing a third-party logistics industrial warehouse complex. In this episode, we talked to Michael about how he bought his first 55-unit self-storage facility, how he turned around a facility that had just 25% economic occupancy, the power of building relationships with local banks, and why he uses the wisdom of Warren Buffett in his real estate investing strategy. I'm Neil Henderson, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things? and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Well, Michael Rogers, welcome to the road to family freedom. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. So before we dig a little deeper, can you tell our our listeners a, a brief story about how you got into real estate? Yeah, I would say my first brush with real estate, I was probably 20. I was about to graduate college and I purchased a, a duplex and held that for a few years and then sold it, made a little bit of money on that. And then I probably went into, I guess I majored in accounting, became a CPA, spent 15 years in in that world, being uh, either working at a regional CPA firm for five years, five years at another insurance company, and then five years at another insurance company doing uh, financial controls, accounting, auditing type work. And all along I was doing that, I was also buying real estate. I always wanted to not be in the corporate world. I wanted to be entrepreneurial. And it just took a while for me to do that on the side, kind of a side hustle to where I got it to where I could do it full time, which is what I'm doing now. What is your focus right now with Chandler Properties? We are primarily self-storage. We've got probably 350 storage units. I bought most of them in 2010. I bought some as late as 2015, and we bought them. So we were kind of a little bit earlier into them. So we got some really good deals on them when I bought them. And then we've got some residential houses we rent, and I flipped a few here and there. The next thing we're going into is an industrial warehouse, mm-hmm. the big 30, 35-foot tall warehouses that are 100, 150,000 square feet large. That's kind of the next thing we're looking at and working on right now. Gotcha. We love talking about self-storage here. So I got to ask you sort of the details of how you how you discovered the asset class and what that first facility purchase was like. I would say the first one was a small one. It was probably 55 units. This was 2009, 2010. So we were right in the middle of the recession and asset prices on everything really dropped. And, you know, I was always, I'm a big Warren Buffett fan. I studied him, followed him. I love that idea of value investing, buying with a margin of safety. And I was just looking at 
okay, what are the competitors, somebody that rents a self-storage unit, what can they get for that size unit? And you just kind of multiplied it out and you said, oh, wow, you know, I can get, you know, two, 3% rule. You know, I can pick up for every hundred thousand dollars I have to spend to buy this asset. I can get two, three thousand dollars a month of revenue, which would be two or three percent at the time. I was like, this, this is, this is great. So I just found one of these that was on the market and had been sitting there for a while. There was nobody buying anything at the time. You know, the banks are really clamped up. And so if you were a buyer and you had good credit and you had a good relationships with banks, which I was fortunate I was in that position, I, I bought that one and, you know, kind of bought it and it was in bad shape. It was, it was maybe 50% occupied and maybe 25% total economic where people are actually paying. So there's, you know, cleaning it up, getting rid of the, the tenants that weren't paying, getting it rented up with good tenants. And then I just kind of went out from there and picked up a couple more and, and pretty much did the same thing. Really on all three of them, I did the same thing. They were underperforming assets where people had bought them and just didn't manage them. And they were either sitting vacant or pretty close to vacant, or they just had a lot of people sitting in them that weren't paying and hadn't paid in a year or two. So I just came in and kind of managed them and, and, and did well with them. Something you often hear, especially... You know, if you spend any time on the bigger pockets forums, you'll often hear people talking about, well, you know, I haven't gotten into real estate yet. I'm just, I'm waiting for the next crash. And I always point out to them, I'm like, you know, when that happens, if you haven't already been investing, if you haven't already built a track record of some sort, if you haven't already built relationships like you had with banks, good luck buying because when there's blood on the streets, people are going to be scared. And if you're scared to invest now, you're probably going to be scared to invest then. You were able to buy a, a facility that was only 25% economically occupied, especially in that time period. How did you convince the bank to take that chance? You know, for me, I've always had better luck with the local banks. I think that's for any of your listeners as a folk, you know, going to those smaller local banks. I think that's so important. They just, they're more flexible. They're easier to deal with. They're not just kind of going through a checklist of, you know, you got to have this, 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 and this. And so they just looked at it and said, well, here's the amount it's loaned for. This guy's got a solid job. You know, at the time I had a you know good W2 earning job and had a good track record, good credit. And so they were like, yeah, let's, let's go for it. And, and I had done that. And I'd say my first you know, I started, this was 2010, I was buying this one in 2009, and I'd started in probably 2000 or early 2000s. In my first four or five years, I made, I think I made the big mistake, and it took me four or five years to really learn this, is I was paying too much for buying things. And in order to make those things cash flow or not lose money, I was having to do everything. And I, I, I made the analogy to people sometimes, it's almost like there's two parts to it. I had spent a whole bunch of money in order to buy myself a nice $10 an hour part-time job because I was the painter, I was the property manager, I was the bookkeeper, I was the lawnmower, I was the guy that, you know, collected rent. You know, I just did everything. And if I wasn't doing that for free, this, you know, couple hundred thousand dollar investment was a loser, you know, <laughs> but because I did that for free, it looked like it cash flowed out just a little bit or broke even. And so that, that was a lesson that I kind of took to heart of, you know, make sure I buy it where it's profitable, where it cash flows. Uh, even if, if I'm not sure, I just go on to the next thing. And, and just as long as I'm looking at lots of things, you know, opportunities, they're always out there. Just sometimes it's easier during the middle of a crisis. It's a lot easier to, they're everywhere at that point. And, you know, when it, things are hot, it's a little harder and you got to look a little harder, but they're out there. 
Well, certainly what anybody who's in self-storage right now knows that it's it's competitive out there. And it's, you know, there are deals out there, but there's a lot of people chasing them and they're not as plentiful. So it's just harder. You got to look harder. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Right now, you definitely, you're having to kind of beat the bushes right now to, to find those ones that, you know, turn over good cash flow. All right. So you ended up buying, how much did that 55 unit cost you to buy? Do you recall? Asking, I know I'm asking. I want to say it was probably, that particular one was maybe 130000 or something. It wasn't, that one wasn't that much, maybe 130 grand. And we had to put maybe 30 grand into it to finish out some units and stuff. These numbers may not be exact. And then also there, it had a house on it. As part of that, it had those units and then it had a little small 800, 800 square foot house. So we took that in order to get it to that 55 units. I want to say we put, we, we took, there was a pad on it where some of the units had burned down. So we had to kind of rebuild those out. So that was 20, 25,000. And then we redid the house because it was super old for another 20 grand, probably 175 grand in it. You know, I would guess is what we got in it. And I would say today, that thing, monthly revenue is probably forty five, forty six, forty seven hundred dollars a month for the storage unit and the house and everything on it. So it's been one hundred seventy, and you get something that makes forty seven hundred a month revenue. For me, that's that's a good deal. And it's you own it free and clear now, or still? we still got a, a loan on it. Yep. Gotcha. Which rates right now are awesome. I was actually talking to a uh, bankers about refinancing that one, and it's like. 3.75, you know, percent, which I'm just like, man, that's just crazy. And there's some, you know, some of them are even lower, but, and that's with very low fixed costs. You know, a lot of times you'll get a good rate, but they want, you know, 2% origination fee. There's basically no origination fee. We want the loan and it's locked for five years. And I'm like, okay, if y'all want to do that, I don't know if it's smart from an asset that liability management perspective from the bank, but good for me. <laughs> yeah. So you're you end up with a you know you're brand new to the self storage business you end up with a a 55 unit struggling distressed asset and you talked about doing some renovations on it how are some of the other ways that you went about cleaning that up and getting it to perform Yeah the first thing we had to do was just kind of go in there and try to figure out who was in those units some of them we kind of knew some of them we didn't so we had to post signs and you know give a give a few months just to give these people a chance to kind of contact us. These people hadn't paid, you know, hadn't paid in two or three years, just kind of go through the legal process and then do auctions, cut the locks off, remove those people, remove their contents. And most of them, you know, there was nothing in them. And then the ones that, and you kind of get this, if you've got an asset, if you take one over and it's been struggling for a while, you kind of get two groups in these things. It seems like you get one group, which is they're just not paying and they're staying there. And then as soon as you start talking to them and they realize they're going to start paying, they leave. And then the other group is you you, you get these folks, they're, they're kind of used to just doing whatever they want to do. You know, if they want to pay, they'll pay. And if they don't, they don't. And so you kind of have to be like, okay, you're going to have to pay. You know, here's the things you're going to have to do. And I understand if this isn't going to work for you, you may want to go find you, your, you know, somewhere else to go. And, and a lot of times they'll leave and some people stay. You end up with you know, having to kind of manage that out and kind of say, we're going to have a system here of how we're going to do things because if I've got lots and lots of units, I can't have everybody on a different system where this person does what he wants. And if he doesn't want to pay this month, he doesn't. And, and so there's some, you know, you have some, some conversations with people who try to get out the troublemakers and just keep the good ones. And as you get rid of those troublemakers, you start getting better tenants because if you got people that are leaving trash everywhere, don't pay rent, don't do what they're supposed to, they're, 
kind of grievanced individuals always coming up with some some issue, it's harder to manage a property and keep good tenants there. So that to me, I think that's kind of the key thing when you take over a property that's like that. Well, it, it, a lot of times it's just a matter of you know, the Pareto principle, finding out who the 20% of the clients that are causing 80% of the work and 80% yeah. of heartache, heartache and just get them to either retrain them or get them to move on. That's uh, true. Where, uh, where was this facility located? Was it in a, I imagine it wasn't in the middle of an urban center or was it? It is in Cleveland, Tennessee, which this is not a heavily urban area. It's not farmland by any means, but I would say just kind of a normal 100,000 square foot, I'm sorry, 100,000 population town in the middle of that. Cleveland, so to kind of give you an overview, Cleveland and Chattanooga sit in the southeast part of Tennessee, and uh, we've really benefited from population. You know, people seem to be coming this way, even it's kind of accelerated somewhat since the pandemic, business-friendly climate. Uh, we're not quite as restrictive on some of the things you've seen put in place. So, the, you know, you're getting some inflow to Nashville and Chattanooga. VW Volkswagen's got a big plant here they put in probably 10 years ago. And there's a lot of industries come in. So it's really a growing area. It's on up, you know, it's going up and up and up, which is a good thing. And you know, if you're investing in real estate, you really want to be in those areas. You don't want to go in areas that are kind of going south that you look like in five, 10 years. You know, what's the rule of law look like? What are is it business friendly? Do people want to be going there? Are people moving there? Are they moving away? This is this area is kind of it's on the good side of those things. You ended up buying two more facilities, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, bought two more. I'd say the second one was maybe 2011, fairly soon after that. And another one was maybe like 2014 or 2015. And that's how we got up to the total of 350 units. So that was so you had 55 and then the next two were, you know, roughly 150 each. That sounds about right. Yep. All in the Cleveland, Tennessee area. Yes. Yeah. All of ours are probably, if you drew a, a circle around them and drew a line through for the diameter, they're probably within five, 10 miles of each other. So we run them from, you know, I've got an office here, you know, where I, I'm at during the day and we run them from there. And particularly with the pandemic, we've gone almost totally virtual. Our software is such that people can sign up online and pay online. And so I'm here, though. And I, it's for me, it's a nice place to just kind of get away from, you know, be able to focus. You know, you're not right there with all the, the kids yelling and screaming. So I still come to my office and and we're able to think and do some more critical thinking type things. And, and I can answer the phone if people have questions and so forth. But we've really gone more online as far as our software for renting. So who's your software that you're using? We use Easy Storage Solutions. I think they're probably, they're out of like maybe Utah. Yeah. Have you heard of them? I have, I have. A lot of people like them. So. Okay. And so you, you now, you completely self-manage or do you have uh, somebody that helps you out? I, I self-manage them. Yeah. I mean, I've got a bookkeeper that's virtual You know, she, she kind of takes care of stuff for me that way. And she'll do some, like when I'm doing marketing, she, she'll do some of that for me, particularly when I was doing like trying to buy houses. That's another thing that's gotten so hot. I've just kind of scaled back from doing, looking for distressed buyers and so forth. I haven't been doing as much of that, but I used to do a lot of marketing for that and picking up three or four of those a year. Um, but she does a lot of that virtually for me, but the, the onsite, I'm kind of that person. And what does a, you know, I mean, you said mostly virtual, you know, 350 units. How often would you say you're having to deal with a, somebody renting unit or somebody, someone moving out? It kind of comes in clumps, but I would say we probably rent, you know, 10 or 15 a month. 
No, we do more than that. Probably 20, 25, 30 a month and probably have some more move outs a month, somewhere between 20 to 30 each way. And so when they move out, you got to go check them, you know, make sure they're clean. You deal with people are going to leave stuff behind, sweep them out, make sure they're good to go to re-rent. And, and a few things you got to do online. And then even when I rent them, I make sure I, I get, you know, I, I've got a touch point with them. So, you know, talk to them on the phone or talk through them email and say, hey, here's kind of what we do. Here's how you, the move-in process is. Here's how the move-out process is. Here's when you can get a hold of us. Here's when you can't get a hold of us if you have an emergency. And so, you, you know, the more you can do up that up front, it makes sure it makes it to where you have less problems later on. So it's basically just tenant tenant training, just essentially giving them the expectation of what it's going to be like. Exactly. Yeah. And I try even before they rent it, I kind of try to tell them, here's the things we offer. Here's the things we don't offer, you know, self-select, see if this is a good fit for you. You know, we don't have like an emergency number over the weekends if you have an issue with the storage unit. So if you if you go up there and you're having some sort of problem, it's going to be Monday morning before you get a hold of us. So just kind of, you know, you shouldn't have any problems. It's very rare, but just be prepared for that. And that way, if that happens, you don't totally lose it on me come Monday morning when I get back. And and we do that just because at first I had everything forwarded my cell phone, but I was getting so many calls and it just got to, you know, you'd be with your kids, your family, you know, Friday night, somebody, you know, their, their idea of an emergency call was, I forgot my my gate code, you know, and, and you're, you gotta, and I gotta go up and look them up, find out if they really are tenant and verify them and then get them the code. And it just kind of broke everything down. So I said, well, let's just not offer that and let people know that we don't offer that. And that's a little bit more of a, for me, that's a better fit. And we stay, we're totally full, you know, it's, we've stayed pretty full this, this year. Yeah. Even through the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, for most of the pandemic we have, we stay pretty full. We're a little bit, I probably rent just a little bit under market. And because there's a few things I, I, we don't do, I think. And, but we do some things really, really well. But I think I try to say, hey, here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. Full expectation of what you're getting. And most people are very, very happy. They really like it. They're good. It's just trying to please everyone. You're not going to. And if you try, if you try to, you're just going to drive yourself crazy. And, and so if you can just kind of narrow it down, be like, hey, this is who we're a good fit for. Here's who we're not. Yeah, I think it makes it better for everyone. Gotcha. And then are all three of them gated electronically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Is it all integrates with uh, easy storage solutions, all that? We don't have we don't have it integrated where like we can update the code through easy storage solution. We just manually go out there and key it in the keypad and update the codes. Gotcha. Your code isn't one, two, three, four, is it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> shoot, I better I better go out and change that for your, <laughs> your listeners. Now. No, no, it's not I, one, two, three, four. Well, I've uh, I've discovered that you know when I'm out driving for dollars with self storage, a lot of times if you come to a facility that's just got a gate code, you go up uh-huh. in one, two, three, four, and a lot of times it, the gate just opens. And you're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah that's true. That can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why did you, you know, you stopped buying storage in 2014. Why did you stop? I just had a harder time getting them at where the the return on investment, the amount I'm having to pay for it, for the amount I was spending, it was harder. And so I, I like to kind of fish where there's nobody else is fishing and where there's lots of fish. And it's just harder to do that. It's kind of why I pulled back on flipping houses. You know, I, I was really surprised. With these, these houses, you know, I would have bet you money that house values would have gone down in this pandemic, but I really got that wrong. They've, particularly in our area, they've skyrocketed. 
so I was really nervous about buying during the pandemic just because I was like, I don't want to buy something thinking it's going to, after repair value is going to be 200 grand and it ends up being 125,000 or something. And, you know, it's gone the other way. It's gone from 200,000 to 250, you know, it's become the ARV. <laughs> and so I, and I think that kind of goes back to that idea of, you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at Berkshire Hathaway. It's the idea is, Find something you're really comfortable doing that you, you feel really good about. And then when you get it, take a big swing at it. But if you're not sure, it's okay to let that pitch go by. And I missed it. I was wrong on that. You know, I could have done well if I would have bought several houses at the beginning of the year. But I just, I didn't, you know, and, and I was wrong. And, and I'm okay with that. You know, it didn't cost me anything. So, you know, we sold our house here in Las Vegas in June for a lot of reasons. But one of them was we had bought it at the bottom of the market. We had huge amounts of equity. The, the growth had just been insane. I think it had grown almost 12% per year value-wise. And it was just insane. And and Vegas has been hit really, really hard. I'd lost a condo in 2008 in the crash. My very first home that I ever bought, I had to do a short sale and I was not going to ride that down again. So I missed, yeah, I missed out on some equity gain, but I also have slept a lot better. Yeah. And that, I think that really, there's something to be said for just being able to sleep well at night. Yeah, man, I, I totally agree with that point. I think that's that's really key because I would say in 2019, 2020, I started re, kind of reallocating my portfolio and getting a lot more conservative as asset prices have gone up and up and up, and they may keep going up. I don't know when they'll you know when they'll level out or if they'll drop. If they do, I don't know. But I wanted to be where I could sleep just fine at night. So that's where we sold some properties, paid down debt, and just tried to get a lot more conservative on the balance sheet so that whatever happens, I can, I can sleep well at night. You know, it's, it, you know, I think, I think you, you make a very good point there. And you, you know, you mentioned uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and you, what you, what you're talking about there, of course, is the circle of competence. And can you, for somebody who's maybe not familiar with, you know, I think most people are pretty familiar with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. If you're not Go look them up and read read a couple of, of their books. All this Burr, Burr investing, value add investing, everything that everyone talks about with with uh, real estate investing is basically what Charlie and Warren Buffett have been doing with businesses, and that's how they've become so wealthy. But for our listeners who are maybe not quite as familiar with them, can you sort of describe what you're talking about with uh, circle of competence and all that? Yeah, you know Warren and Charlie, they're the the chair and vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway. They've owned a ton of different companies over the last, gosh, I don't know, 50, 60 years. They, they, they've owned those companies. And the kind of the key things they talk about, and they, I guess, took them from the, their mentors. Ben Graham was Warren Buffett's mentor when he first started out. And the basic idea was buying things with a margin of safety, meaning if you know you've got something, this, this pen, I can go out and sell it for a dollar to somebody and you can buy it for 99 cents, that's not a very big margin of safety. You know, something can happen. There could be something wrong with this pen. But if I can buy this pen for 50 cents, there's a lot of margin of safety for anything that's wrong with that pen. If the market changes and the price of the pen drops to 75 cents, you still got a margin of safety there uh, that you can make, make it work. And I felt like, you know, like we talked about in 2010, I feel like there's huge margin of safety of what you can buy things. Things literally you can buy them for 50 cents on the dollar. You know, I bought one storage unit. The second one I bought, I bought in like 2011, it had been advertised for maybe 600 grand and I bought it for 180. You know, the, it just, it was just, of course, the 600, I think was overinflated at the time. 
but it was just shows you how much things can drop. And I knew based on what the rents you could get off of that, it's like there's a tremendous amount of margin of safety. So that's margin of safety, basically buying it with some cushion. And then the other one, the circle of competence, is basically saying, what do I know? Or what can I figure out? What can I very easily look at and see, here's where it is now. What does it look like five, 10 years from now or 15 years from now? And do I understand that? And if you can't understand it, there is nothing wrong with saying, I don't get this. You know, I, I, I'm not like I've had people come to me with like virtual currency and stuff. And I'm like, I, I, th- I hope you do well at it. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just don't quite understand how to value this asset. It's not that I, I think it's wrong or anything. I just don't. So I just kind of put it in that too hard to understand pile. You know, I feel like for me, if like if I was looking at asset classes right now, I feel like industrial warehousing is going to do well versus office buildings, malls. If you look, if you look at malls, that's really tough. You know, retail is somewhat changed in my opinion. You know, Amazon's got this basic effect where you can pick something up, you know, pick something online and it's there tomorrow. And that's causing the way we buy to change. So there's much less need to go to some bricks and mortar store because people are paying $15, $20 a square foot to keep every piece of potential inventory you need. And that's expensive. There's a lot of overhead and and that's just not sustainable for these folks. So I'm not interested in buying those kinds of assets. I'm more interested in industrial warehouse because it's just growing so fast. And I think it will continue to grow. You know, the, the coronavirus really accelerated that. It's almost like it took five or six quarters of growth and just popped them into one quarter for the demand for industrial warehouse. And I, I see over the next 15, 20 years, that being more, more important because it even it's not even just the big centers that are doing it. It's this last mile storage where, um, you know, they want to get closer and closer to the end consumer with the stuff so they can do that, that quicker one day shipment or same day shipping. And so that, that's kind of where I almost look at, can I understand where this is going in five or 10 years kind of plays into a circle of competence. And, and so just kind of picking things I understand. As soon as you mentioned, you know, picking something you can understand, I immediately thought of, of cryptocurrency and, and then you mentioned it, which is, you know, I have friends who are, who have made a lot of money in crypto and they keep telling me, Oh, you got to get into it. You got to get into it. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I just, I understand conceptually what it is and what's going on there, but I don't really, really understand the value behind it. So mm-hmm. I don't really understand what's making the price go up and down. So I'll pass. No, thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll stick to things that I understand why they're valued the way they're valued. And this one mm-hmm. I love about real estate is especially what I love about commercial real estate, you know, and I, and I invest in stocks, uh, you know, I, I put money in equities and things like that. Not really, I, I pretty much just stick it into index funds because as much as I love Apple products and, and Tesla, you know, all that, I don't have the faintest clue what's causing that value. And I have no idea what that value is going to be in 20 years. Uh, and that's why I don't take heavy bets on it. I just don't. I just yeah, don't. I'm the same way. I'm an index fund investor. You know, I just, you know, put it in there and put it in the 401ks and IRAs and just basic index funds. And your point about, you know, seeing your friends, if they're just killing it, and that's emotionally, that's very hard for people to watch somebody just absolutely killing it. And the, the fear of missing out that, man, they're getting it. And I'm sitting here for and, and that's hard for people to, to let that happen. And so you got to you got to have that emotional. OK, to be OK with that, to be like, I'm happy for you. I'm really happy for you and genuinely happy for you. But that's just not for me. And that can be hard sometimes. You've, you're developing three large warehouses now. Yeah, we've got a uh, 
13, 14 acre tract of land here in Cleveland. And it's set up to where it can hold about 200,000 square feet of total high bay warehouse. And what we're trying to get to is the number of buildings and how it'll be laid out is, is flexible. And it'll depend really on the tenant mix and who we get. So I'm in the basic process of now. We spent most of 2020 going through getting our regulatory approvals, getting hydrologic determinations, phase ones, these topographic surveys. And and we're about to get to the end of the the permit process so that we can do land clearing and do a few things like that. So it's almost not quite pad ready, but we're very close to that. So there would be a very low run time between somebody saying, hey, I really want 50,000 square foot building. And we could just put that up in six months or so and be able to rent it to them. But that's what we're going to do. We're really going to let whatever the tenant demand is drive how that final place looks. looks. But it should have somewhere between 150 and 200,000 square feet. And who are the typical kinds of tenants for properties like that? You know, anybody looking to do warehousing, you know, we're kind of in an area that's got, we've got some Kroger distribution centers. They've got a million square feet just down the, you know, a mile and a half from us where Kroger kind of sends out all their food or most of it, a lot of it. They've gone with their street. Coca-Cola, they've got a spot near us. They, they've probably got 100,000 square feet where they distribute model Coca-Cola and, and send it out. So any manufacturer, that they've got to store that stuff. And a lot of them don't want to own those big, heavy, asset, intense assets that you know take a lot of money and they want to rent them. And so if you're doing like a triple net lease type thing, those would be your tenants. The other option is to do some sort of like warehousing 3PL, third-party logistics, and we're kind of looking at probably doing a mix of both, some sort of triple net lease where somebody takes 7,500,000 square feet and then maybe take another 50,000 square feet and us do warehousing where we manage our housing, not typically for a Coca-Cola or something like that, but a smaller manufacturing site where they, they've got all these materials that are coming in, raw materials, and they don't want to keep those on site. They want to have somebody receive those, keep them, and as they need them each day, you run them over to them, you know, within, you know, if you're five, 10 miles away from you, just run those over to them and they make a request every day and you manage and they pay you a fee for that. That's, that's kind of a piece of 3PL warehousing. That's kind of, we're, we're interested in maybe doing those two facets. Gotcha. So it's not just, it's not just the real estate. It's also a little bit of the distribution, like it's the, the logistics as well, correct? That's the part we're interested in. Yeah. And you could just do, I mean, you can just do the real estate. If we had somebody come along and said, Hey, we want to, you know, rent this entire thing, triple net, we, you know, we wouldn't do that. But if we get somebody that kind of comes in that we can kind of build a business of doing the 3PL uh, warehousing, we could do that as well. They both do well. Gotcha. On this show, we like to talk a lot about how much money people took to get started, the kind of knowledge it took them, time it takes now, and and the distance involved. So if you were forced to start over tomorrow knowing nothing about real estate investing, what would Mike Rogers' real estate MBA look like? You mean like, what would I try and learn? Yep. I think, you know, I think those principles that Warren Buffett, you know, the Intelligent Investor is a good book that Ben Graham wrote that he always recommends. If you listen to Warren Buffett, there's like two chapters. I can't remember the exact chapters. He recommends people read, you know, the the essays of Warren Buffett where they've taken his annual letters and kind of put them down into a condensed version. Those are very good. But just understanding those, no matter what asset class, whether you're going to do commercial, residential, industrial, or you're going to invest in stocks, I think those are all key points that typically those marginal safety and bond circle competence. I would probably... You know, in this particular market, I don't know exactly what I would end up doing because doing the industrial warehouse thing, it, it is one of those a little bit higher barriers to entry. It's more money. You got to be a little more specialized. You got to have a little more understanding. 
to do that as opposed to just buying a house and flipping it. But you know, let's say if you wanted to do house flipping, you could definitely do it in this market. It's going to be harder than it has in the past just because there's so many people doing it. But you know, if you're willing to work at it, put the hours in, I would probably try to find somebody to intern with, even if you're, you're doing it for very cheap, and try to learn from them in some area that you're interested in, in doing and just learn that way. It's something, you know, two things you, you mentioned there that, that I always harp on people about is one, look at the best in the world that what they're doing. Warren Buffett, you know, I mean, Charlie Munger, you know, they're value add investors, margin safety. There, there's a reason that they've, they've been able to do what they've been able to do for over 50 years. It's not like they just got lucky and invested in Tesla early on. And then the other thing is, is the idea of, I even recommend this for somebody who's maybe getting out of high school and has some questions about what they want to do with their life. You know, I'm going to go to college. I got to go to college. Uh, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll get an English degree or, yeah. you know, and there's all those people that do that. You just, they think, Oh, I've got to go to college and I've got to pick something. So I'm just going to pick some major. And then next thing you know, you're, you're five years down the road and $60,000 in debt. And you've got a degree that, you know, is not all that valuable and it's not a, a job that you particularly even want anymore. I always recommend, I, I tell people, if you've got any question, go intern, go intern yeah. somewhere. You're young, you've got time, you don't need a lot of money. Go mm -hmm. intern with somebody who's doing a job that you think you want to do and get really get an idea of what that's like. And if it's something that you want to even do, and then either stay on with them and learn or and then or then go off if it requires a degree then go off to college and do it you know I, my first degree in college was a, as a photojournalist and then i found out i met a lot of photojournalists and they were really really miserable underpaid people yeah. and, I, and i discovered oh well i don't want to do that you know yeah i think man i think you really hit the nail on the head there and that's such an important point and 20 years ago i would have told anybody go get a degree you need to have a degree so you can go get a job i don't care what you get it in but over the last 20 years, I think things have kind of changed. And you see so many people that have got $100,000 in student loan debt. And you ain't bankrupting your way out of that. There's no getting out of that debt. It's going to follow you until you pay it. And like you said, they've, they've majored in something that is worthless. I mean, it literally, they're waiting tables. <laughs> and and I think that the, 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 the trade skills are so, there's so many people that really ought to be going into that as opposed to getting these degrees, you know, kind of soft degrees. And I tell people, I'm like, if you know you want to go in and you want to be a nurse, or you want to be a doctor, or you want to be a CPA or an engineer, somewhere where you know there's a heck of a demand for that job, where you can make a good job, of it, I don't see any problem you going in and taking on a lot of debt. But if like what you're saying, you don't know what you want to do, and you're going to get a soft degree that there's no real demand for it, that that's I don't think that's a, I don't think you're going to get a return on investment on that and in doing something like learning HVAC repair or plumbing or something like that where they'll literally like in Tennessee they'll they'll pay for you to do that you know you can go get that for free and if you don't like it two years in go do something else you're not in debt you know because once you get all that debt it's like having a you know you're somewhat of a slave to your job you've got to keep working to pay that debt and so I, I think that that's really a good point you made about college you know it's it's very important it's still very good for a lot of people but i think there's a lot of people that go to college they don't need to be going to college in my opinion well and there, there's the whole idea of, of people think that well the way to get rich is to have a good high paying job hmm. and unfortunately a lot of times what happens with that is you you end up it, either 
you got to go to school for a long time and get into a lot of debt. The, the, there's a lot of the lifestyle creep of, you know, all right, I'm making $250,000 a year, but I'm spending 298. You know, there's a lot of people like that. And, and they think, well, I can't get rich if I'm not making $100,000 a year. Well, you can, you know, just, you got to live below your means and, you know, and put the money into assets that are going to grow and make money, either index fund investing or real estate, you know? And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's the advice that I would give to people that are, that are struggling with wanting to, wanting to achieve financial freedom. There's a lot, there's a lot of people in the fire movement, financial independence, retire early. Man, I, the first thing I would tell you is, is, don't spend a bunch of money on college and go into a lot of debt unless you're absolutely sure that that's what you want to do for the rest of your life. And that it's yep. going to, and that it's going to be a good return on your investment. No, that's good advice. All right. So, uh, you're a full-time investor. How much time would you say that you're spending on your real estate endeavors these days? I'd say it'll vary sometimes, you know, 20, 30 hours a week. Sometimes I may spend 40, 50 hours, but it's typically stuff I'm, I'm wanting to do. If it's something that interests me, I'll get into it and really doesn't even feel like work when I'm working, you know, more hours. But, you know, I have to work probably 20, 30 hours a week. But I don't I don't hate it, though. You know, it's not like there's a difference. And it, you're, everybody's different. The personality is different. But if you're going in, sometimes in, sometimes in these corporate environments, you can end up in a situation where you're working and you, maybe you get a different manager. And you, you love the manager you have before, but you get another one. They're tough and they're really grinding you. And... If you've got a you know a big mortgage, big student loan debt, car payment, all these other things, you're going to work. I mean, you're going to do whatever they tell you to do because you don't have a choice. And that's one of the things I think going to that fire idea. You know, you mentioned about being where you don't have to be there to that you get that independence. And I think that's important because you know even if you've got a manager you really like and a job you really like, that can change. And, and it's nice to be able to have options. Are all of your investments pretty much there within your local community? Yeah, all mine are within uh, Cleveland, Chattanooga. I don't do much. I'm, I'm not really done any long distance investing. I tend to be things where I can kind of keep my eye on them. It's kind of been my strategy. Well, Michael Rogers, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and learn more about you, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, you can catch me on LinkedIn, just under my name, Michael Rogers, or you can chandler-property.com you know or you can catch us on our face we've got a facebook page chandler chandler properties so you could uh, like that and follow us there okay well thanks again for sharing with us today great seeing you all right thanks man okay that was michael rogers from chandlerproperties.com you can check him out at chandler-properties.com highly recommend you uh, do that for me, the, the key lesson learned here was to stick to investing in your circle of competence and maintain a margin of safety. I like investing in real estate, uh, especially commercial real estate, because I understand how it's valued. The processes for increasing the value are repeatable and replicable. And, I, I, you know, I love Apple products. I invest in Apple via index funds. I admit I have no idea why Apple is valued at $131 a share today and Tesla is valued at $848 a share. And I have no idea how they'll be valued in 20 years. If I can buy an asset, I understand, and I can buy it with a margin of safety and with a value add component, I am light years ahead of 99% of investors out there. Um, knowledge. Uh, we talked about Michael's 
notional real estate MBA. And he said he would read the books of Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and Ben Graham. And then he would just intern with people who were doing the things that he wanted to do. Uh, and I think we really got into a great discussion about college and, and uh, choosing a career path that way. And I think it applies if you're 20 years old, 18 years old, or 50 years old. How much money did it take him to get started in his niche? Uh, it took him about $130,000 to buy and rehab that first 55-unit self-storage facility. He bought it for about $30,000, but he said he had to put a lot of money into it to renovate it. How much time does he spend on his real estate endeavors now? This is his full-time job, but he said he really only has to spend about 20 to 30 hours a week on it. And he self-manages almost all of his portfolio. Could they do this strategy from anywhere in the world? You know, probably not. Uh, Michael said he really prefers to stay close to his investments to keep an eye on them. So, okay. Once again, that was Michael Rogers from ChandlerProperties.com. We highly recommend you go check him out and thank him for imparting his knowledge with us today. And we're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.